John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 39 down to the end of the chapter, verse 47, and consider those same verses. Before we read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit into each of our hearts and lives. You'd be at work. Your word is living and active. It's sharp. It cuts all the way down to the depths of our hearts and souls. So we ask that as you divide us down to the very marrow of our souls, down to our bones, that you would expose us for what we really are, that you give us the truth, and that you'd also heal us uh, by what you've made us to be in Christ. And, and and he whom you've offered to us. And so we pray that you would accomplish our, your great work through uh, this time of meditation on your word. We ask that you grant sanctification and growth for those of us who believe that if there are any who hear who don't know you, that they would come to know you. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John 5, beginning at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone with us and listening, Jesus in this section of scripture is laying out witness after witness uh, he's his own witness, but he realizes that they won't accept that. So he says, hey, I've got John the Baptist. The Father himself testifies about me. My works are a witness that, that the Father's doing through me. And then the final witness is the witness of the Word, the Bible. And this is a witness that should have been a slam dunk for uh, the Jewish leader standing in front of Jesus. When John refers to the Jews, he likely has in mind almost always the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. And this witness should have been a slam dunk. Jesus should have brought up the word and they should have all been able to say, hey, yeah, of course you're from the Father. You look exactly like all the prophecies have said you would look like. But again, he brings up this witness to expose that actually it's not a slam dunk with him. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, but they don't get it. They've totally missed it. They're, they're blind to this fact. And it's maybe one of the biggest tragedies in all of human history that the people who knew the Word of God the best had copious amounts of it memorized, probably more than you and I ever will or are even capable of. They spent their life doing this. They, knowing this great Word of God, missed the Savior whom that Word of God proclaimed and foreshadowed and spoke about. And so we see Jesus addressing them, really appealing to them in such a loving yet truthful way uh, in the hopes that they would actually come to believe in Him. And I don't have a fancy outline. I couldn't figure this out. Uh, one theme, there's a lot going on here. So I'm just going to walk through 
a few points. And the first point is this. You can know the Bible and be lost because in it you see only yourself rather than Christ. It's a long point. but You can know the Bible and be lost because in it you only see yourself. You don't see Christ. And we see that in verses 39 and following. Let me read them quick. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. So Jesus begins by saying, you search the scriptures. This is simply something they did. Uh, you, can, you can translate that, that you search the scriptures as an imperative, search the scriptures, or as an indicative, you search the scriptures. And, and I think indicative is a, a, a better way to translate it. And a lot of people do because Jesus isn't telling them to go search the scriptures. He's simply stating, look, this is what you do. You do search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. That's why you search them. You think that by searching the scriptures and, and analyzing them and looking at them very closely that you have life just by doing that very work. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, particularly the scribes, what the Pharisees did as well, they did to the Bible what we would today call data mining. They, they analyzed it, hyperanalyzed it, pulled out every piece of data they could. And I was entirely unaware of this until I went to seminary. One of my professors kind of detailed what they did and they actually counted up all the words in the entire Old Testament. They found the middle word in the entire Old Testament and they knew the middle word of each book of the Bible as well. So again, data mining, right? Finding out the statistics of the Bible finding out the statistics of, of the word of, of the Old Testament. They did this for a living. They were exacting in their view of the word of God. And they actually went through and counted up all the commandments, particularly in the first five books of the Bible. And that's where they came up with the 613 mitzvot or the 613 commandments that, that the Jews would follow, saying these are the commandments the Lord has uh, given to us. So they viewed the Bible almost as an archeological find detailing its every statistical characteristic, but totally missing. Hey, look at this cool thing we found, uh, digging it up. This is amazing. They're, they're, they're staring at the trees, but missing uh, the forest. And the reason they did this is you think that in them you have eternal life. They thought that their diligent study of the Bible gave them eternal life. D.A. Carson writes this, one commentator, Jesus points out that their primary motivation in such diligent study was the hope of final acceptance with God. You think that by them you possess eternal life. Certainly there's ample external evidence that supports this reading of Jewish motivation. For example, Rabbi Hillel affirms that the more study of the law, the more life, and that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. The more Bible you know, the more you memorize, the more details you know, the more data you've mined out of the Bible, then the more you have eternal life. That was their understanding. And it's possible then to know scripture by heart and be lost because in verse 42, Jesus says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus, he's not saying, yeah, this is a guess. Jesus knows all men. We, we discovered that earlier in John. He knows them. He knows their spiritual state. He knows where they are spiritually. And he says, I know you're lost. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but actually you're lost. I know you. I know your relationship with the Father. The Jews thought that by the sheer act of memorizing scripture and knowing it and learning the words on the page, they would be saved. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, 
The scriptures cannot impart life to you. They are not an end in themselves. They are a means to an end. The scriptures do not exist to point to themselves. The Bible is given to us by God to point to him so that we know God through the Bible. Knowing the Bible isn't the same as knowing God. Think of this for a minute. Let's say you gave a cheesecake to a bunch of uh, people to enjoy and eat. It was a group of folks sitting around like on a lunch break. You walked into their job site. You have no idea where you are. You walked into their, their office space. They're in the break room. You give them a cheesecake. And an hour later, you come back and ask them how the cheesecake was. And they've got that thing all dissected up. They've got it in their laboratory. You find out they're a bunch of chemists. And they've got this cheesecake down to the molecular level. They can tell you all about the atoms, but nobody's taken a bite. Nobody's actually eaten the cheesecake. And that's something that the, that's similar to what the Jews had done with the Bible. The Lord has given them this great revelation of Christ and what he's going to look like and what he's going to accomplish and foreshadow and making people hunger for him by giving them this law that they just can't keep. There's no way you can keep this if you really know it. And yet by the time you get to them, they've just got this whole thing dissected all the way down to the nitty gritty, 613 commandments, tell you the middle word in each book and the whole Testament, but they've absolutely missed Christ. It'd be similar to uh, imagine you write your spouse this great letter filled with loving comments and compliments and, and just a doting letter. And they get the letter and say, hey, I really loved your letter. It had 883 words in it. I know the middle word of it. <laughs> and I love the punctuation you used and the grammar is amazing. And the vocabulary, wow, the vocabulary, unbelievable. But, you know, I don't, I don't really have to see you again. I don't, I don't necessarily love you, but I love your letter. It sounds ridiculous, right? Jesus is standing in front, of, in front of people who've done just that. We love the word, the Jews would say. We love the Bible. The Christ of the Bible shows up and they say, who do you say you are? Wait, no, you're not, no, don't tell us you're the Messiah. You're, you're just an imposter. They've totally missed it, even though they had every opportunity to discover who Christ was. And Jesus is saying, look, it's all about me. They speak of me. They bear witness of me. And if you want more proof of that, Luke 24, when he's on, uh, after his resurrection, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's on the road to Emmaus. Wouldn't you love to have been in that conversation and just heard what Jesus said? Their hearts lit on fire eventually. They're like, wow, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us on the road? Uh, just amazing. But Jesus says, Jesus himself says, all the law, the prophets, the whole Testament has to do with me. It's me that they all point to. Moses speaks of me. The scriptures speak of me. You, know, you can go into a synagogue today, beloved, and have the Torah read endlessly. The Old Testament, they can read it nonstop. But nobody will arrive at Christ. They don't see Christ on the pages. They don't see the Jesus of the New Testament, of the Gospels, on the pages. And it's they that, that bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something powerful about understanding this, that the whole Testament has to do with Christ. And Sally Lloyd-Jones, she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, among some other things. She recalled, I didn't write down the reference, so <laughs> this could be off a little bit, but she recalled uh, uh, a time when she saw a Bible teacher read a Bible story. 
And the story was about Daniel. And as this person was reading the story, they, the one student actually was coming closer and closer to the Bible, where he kind of anticipating what was going on and really excited, like, wow, this is an amazing story. And then the reader stopped and said, well, now how can we apply this to our lives today? And the, the, the student just slumped. Like, apply it to today. What, this is a great story. Like, <laughs> look at what's going on here. Look at how God's redeeming his people. And there's something glorious, beloved, in approaching the Bible, recognizing, of course, it has to do with us. Of course, God has laid claim to our lives who believe in him. Of course, we have things to do. But this is a grand story told over thousands of years by dozens of authors, by one God, the Holy Spirit, writing it. And it's a story about how God pulled off this thing, creating the world, redeeming fallen people. And he didn't just do it in the blink of an eye. He's like, well, we got a long process here. I'm going to give him the law. It'll be a tutor to Christ. We're going to deal with this over centuries. Then after Christ comes, it's going to be another long time. It'll be a while. Who knows how long it'll be, right? Until he comes again. Beloved, there is something enchanting about this, delightful down to the soul, wonderful, about approaching the Bible and seeing Christ in it, God redeeming us and how he pulled this off, how he did it, how he accomplished it. And there's two very different ways of reading the Bible. The Pharisees read it. What does this have to do with us? It's selfish. How can I benefit from this? And a Christian or a believer reads it. What is God doing in this? How is he redeeming his people through his son? And what is my response to be toward it? So let me just do a couple of four examples. You can, Genesis 12, famine forced Abram into Egypt. He goes there, he's worried about Pharaoh. Says to Sarah, say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Here's the moral of the story. Husbands quit being wimps, wives don't lie. Sarah don't lie for Abram and Abram don't pull that off again, right? Okay, there's a moral. But here's, here's another way of looking at it. When you read that story, don't you long for Sarah to have a husband who doesn't sacrifice her for his sake? Because Abram basically said, I don't care what they do to you. I'm in this for my own neck. You say you're my sister, I gotta go off scot-free. Don't you long for Abram to be a better husband? Absolutely, long for a better one. Well, that's who Christ is. Because Christ comes and what does he do for his bride? Does he say to the church, hey, you guys, you risk your neck for me and I'm not gonna do a thing for you. No, he actually comes down here just just risk his neck. He actually lays down his neck. He says, I'm in. I'll suffer for my bride. No one will get to her. I will protect her. That's, that's what it is to read Christ into that story and to see him in that story. Or you can take the prayer of Abram. This is one of my favorites after I, I heard a sermon on this. I thought it was just amazing. You know, in, in Genesis 18, Abram's praying for Sodom and he says, far be it from you to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous spare as the wicked. He said, look, Lord, for the sake of 50 righteous, will you spare the city? And the Lord said, yes, for the sake of 50. And then Abraham keeps going down. He goes to 45. <laughs> will you spare it for 45? Yes, I will. Will you spare it for 40? Will you spare it for 30? Will you spare it for 20? And, and every response, the Lord says, yes, for 20, I will. Will you spare it for 10? Yes, I will. Moral of the story? Be persuasive in prayer through humility. If God brings judgment on people through mudslides, tsunamis, or tornadoes, or sickness, or death, that means there weren't enough righteous people among them. That's another way of looking at it. Well, a mudslide hit this particular town or this particular state. Guess there weren't enough righteous people in there to save that town. That could be a moral of the story. But how about this, seeing Christ in it? 
How many righteous people does it take to save the wicked? That's what Abram's wrestling with. How many righteous people does it take to save the wicked? Abram went for 50, he got all the way down to 10. What does the New Testament do? It takes it down to one. How many people does it take to save the wicked? One person. Not 50, not 40, not 30, not 20, not 10, not five, not even two. It takes one person and his name is Jesus. And that's what he is wrestling with. That's what he's discovering. Again, seeing this in the, in the scripture changes everything. And now indeed there's a call to prayer, beloved. But, but if we fail to see Christ and if there's no encouragement for us other than, well, I guess we've got to get better at praying, on you go, there's no hope. Uh, but there's something marvelous about these stories. The Holy Spirit is a storyteller. He tells these stories and they foreshadow Christ. And there's so many golden nuggets in there. Uh, take Isaac, Genesis 22, Abram Isaac, that famous story. God says to Isaac, go sacrifice your son, your only son, your, the son whom you love, Isaac. So it can't be anybody else. It's got to be Isaac. Moral of the story, parents, if God asks you to sacrifice your kids, go do it. If God asks you to sacrifice something really, like even your own kids, go do it. Hard to figure that one out, isn't it? Indeed, God calls us to sacrifice, and that's part of it. But how about this? Centuries later, there was another son who walked right up in that same mountain range. And when that son was laid on the altar, no one said, stop. No one halted it. The father's wrath was raised, the blade was in the air, and no one said, stop. I've got another sacrifice. In fact, the word said, you have to do it. You are the sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice. And now we get to go off scot-free because Jesus was in our place. Or you can take David and Goliath, for example. Moral of the story, carry a weapon always with you. Carries five smooth stones and a sling. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That can be another moral. Or pick your teammates wisely. Make sure David's on your side. That's, that's a decent moral. Make sure that when you're gonna go to fight, you got good buddies on your behalf. Or you can look at David and Goliath saying, we're the scaredy cat Israelites. Jesus walks into the place. He takes down our biggest enemy, Satan, death, sin, the world, takes it all on and wipes it out. And then after our enemies are lying dead, then all of a sudden we're motivated. We go from complaining and scared to running out into the field and conquering our enemies because our savior took down the biggest enemy and he's on our side. Beloved, this is what the Jews missed. This is what they missed because all they could see was them. All they could see was what they could get out of it. Indeed, I want to say the Bible is about us. In fact, the, if you read the Bible, we'll discover it has a lot to say to us and about us. But the Bible is so, about so much more, and Christ says it's about me. I'm in there. I'm the one who's your hope. I'm the one that the Father's been speaking about, that the Holy Spirit's been writing about century after century. Let me just ask you this, do you, do you see him in it? Do you behold him in it? Or is the Bible, when you study it, all about you? Does your heart ever marvel and just stop? Does your heart ever wonder? Have you ever read a book and it's such an incredible story, but there's no moral application at all to you or to me? And, I, and you don't need one because you're so in, you're, you're, your mind is blown by it 
You can hardly contain yourself in it emotionally or mentally. You say, this is an incredible story. What an ending. You don't need a moral of the story. <laughs> you don't need anyone to tell you what to do. You just leave marveling. The rest of the day, you're floating in cloud nine because you've seen what took place in it. Beloved, that's the word of God. Look at what God's done here. He's taken broken, messy, fallen people who didn't want him in their life, who thought Satan was smarter than he is, and he's redeemed them, free of charge to them, paid all the cost, and he's made them worship him again. He's made them lovers of him. And he said, by the way, the best is yet to come. You're going to get to heaven and you won't be able to fall anymore. He's done all this for these people. And to read Christ in the scriptures is to see this and glory in it and be enamored with what he's done for us. The second thing I want us to see out of this passage is that the praise of men can prevent one's salvation. Verses 41 to 44. I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I wanna hone in on that verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? The word can has to do with ability. Jesus is saying this, it's not even possible. No one has the ability to believe if their life mission is to receive glory from one another rather than the glory that comes from God. It's not possible to believe. What, why isn't it possible? Well, because if we're approaching the Bible and we're approaching Christ wanting glory out of it, then we have, we have two complete opposites going at each other because in salvation, Christ alone gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. And if we're approaching Christianity or the Bible saying, I want glory, there are two polar opposites. You can't have one or the other. Either we're glorified through our religion or God is glorified, but both can't happen at the same time. And so Jesus is saying, look, other people will come in their name and you'll accept them because when they come, they use words of flattery. They're false Christ. They're, they're, they're Messiahs. And people did come in the first century. Josephus has mentioned many of them, a, a Jewish historian. People came in their own names. They came as these false Christs, these pseudo-Messiahs, and they made these great claims. They flattered people with their words, and so people felt good about themselves, and they were each glorying each other. They're flattering each other back and forth. He said, they come in, your, in their name, and you believe them. But I come, the real Messiah, and you don't, you don't believe me. What's going on? Because when Christ comes, he doesn't come to glorify people. He doesn't come to let anyone glory in themselves. In fact, when Christ comes, he said, you give me all the glory, you give my father all the glory, you get none. You trust in me and you're saved, but there's, there's no glory for you in that. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't accept it because they wanted the glory and the praise of men. We see this elsewhere in scripture, Matthew 23 uh, and Matthew 6. Matthew 23, verse 5, speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes whom Jesus is speaking to in John 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by others. That's what they wanted. How can you believe in a Christ who comes and says, you honor me? And when other people praise you, you better shut that off. You can't use me 
to get other people to praise you. Don't use my word to receive glory for yourself. You need to glorify me and you need to show others how they can glorify me. But what these people have done is they put themselves right in between people and Christ saying, glorify me, and they get all the glory and all the praise and they love it. Jesus is saying, you can't have both. It's not possible to believe in me if you want praise and glory from other people. Matthew 6, 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Matthew 6, 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. It's not possible to use the Bible to gain glory for oneself and believe in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. I'm wrestling with this question too. I'm asking myself as well. Are you, am I, using scripture to get glory for ourselves? Are we using, that's good. <laughs> no, amen, that's the only right answer, no. Are you and I using scripture to get glory for ourselves or are we learning Christ in them and wanting to glorify him? It's the biggest question, beloved. It's a huge question. What the scribes and Pharisees did is say, hey, we're gonna study the word, we're gonna know the word, we're gonna data mine the word so that when we go out in public, we get all the answers, we know all the commandments, we know exactly how to pray in the right language, we give to the needy because we know we're supposed to do that so that everybody around us will praise us to our face and worship us even behind our back. Is that how we're using our knowledge of the Bible? It's very possible to do it. It's very possible to study the Bible so that, oh, I wanna study the Bible so that I have the right answer for somebody, not to be helpful to them, but so that they'll think I'm a super Christian, a really good Christian because I know the Bible really well. Love, that's entirely missing the point. We're trying to get glory for ourselves then rather than let Christ be the one who's glorified. That's what the Jews were doing. And Jesus saying, you can't believe in me if you're gonna use my word to get glory for yourself. Either I'm glorified through your believing in me or you're gonna glorify yourself. It's one or the other, it's not both. And then one more thing I'd like us to look at before we spend a little bit of time concluding is to know the Bible but not know Christ is eternally destructive. So do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? So Jesus says Moses wrote of him and this could be a direct reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses wrote that. Some translations capitalize that uh, the, the word prophet with a capital P, a direct uh, prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also there, there's probably a reference to, Jesus is referring to all that Moses wrote. When he says, Moses wrote of me. Well, what do you mean Moses wrote of you? Well, Moses wrote about the sacrificial system. That points ex directly to me. All these sacrifices, they had to keep doing them over and over and over again. And by the blood of bulls and goats, uh, no sin was ever taken away. Even though they did this every day, every year, over and over and over again. They all point to me who's going to be the one true sacrifice. The laws which Moses wrote about. If people really understood the law, they'd say, I can't keep this. I, I can't fulfill this. And, and the law says, do this and you shall live. That's what the Lord told me, do this and you'll live. Well, I can't do this, so I guess I'm dead. I'm, 
I'm a goner. So the law was, as Paul said, a tutor to Christ. The law causes people or should have caused them to think over and over again, I need someone who can do this for me or I can't stand before God. I need to look for that person. That's the Messiah. I trust in him. But again, for them, it didn't do that. But again, Moses wrote of Christ. Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. And in Luke 16, there's this great parable, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in Hades, called out to Abraham to send Lazarus to the house of his five brothers to warn them, lest they die in unbelief as well and go to suffer in hell. And Abraham responded saying, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And Jesus says in verse 45, do not think I will accuse you to the father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Don't think I have to show up on the last day in order for you to be accused is what he's saying to these Jews. All that has to be done as we open up a passage from Moses, the very author that you love and cherish, and you'll be accused because you didn't listen to Moses. Because he wrote of me, you don't believe me, therefore you don't believe Moses either. Moses and I are on the same page, is another way of putting it. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon entitled, Living Unconverted Under an Eminent Means of Grace, in the last paragraph of the sermon writes this, the many powerful awakening sermons that you have heard won't be forgotten, though they have so little regarded them. They'll all be remembered, and you must hear them rehearsed again. Though you were quiet under them when you heard them, yet when you hear them again, you will not be so quiet. They'll be thunder to you. Every word will pierce your heart through and through with torments. He's extrapolating on what it will be like to have the things you've heard, Moses for the Jews, or the sermons that lost people have heard and never responded to, what it'll be like to hear those on the last day so that everyone will have to say, yep, everyone who's lost will have to say, yep, I knew, I heard. Moses, what, what would the Jewish religious leaders have said? Moses will accuse us, I know Moses. Yep, but you didn't know him well. You didn't really know what Moses wrote. And they think Moses is their hope. If Moses shows up at the last day, he'll be our hope. Knowing what Moses wrote, that's how we have eternal life. And Jesus says, actually, that's, that's what's going to destroy you, is because you don't really believe Moses. It'll be the same thing with people having heard the gospel. They've heard it over and over again, sitting in the pews, in their neighborhoods, at work, from friends who are Christians. They've heard it over and over again, and yet they won't respond, and they won't respond, and they won't believe, and they won't believe and all of that will come back to, as it were, haunt them on the last day when it's evidence you actually did, could have believed you actually did here. I want to conclude just with a few things here because sitting kind of right in the middle of this passage uh, is uh, a really, I guess, powerful verse. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have uh, life and before we do that, before we work that out, just for those of us who are believers, Christian friends and brothers and sisters, as we approach the Bible, there's a hermeneutic, which is a fancy English word for saying an approach 
uh, to interpreting the Bible. What we're being taught here is that when we come to the Bible, we've got to see Christ in it. That's the hermeneutic. He is the key to unleashing and opening the Bible. If you miss him, like Jesus says, you miss everything. It all has to do with me. It all points to me. Don't think that in studying the Bible and memorizing the Bible that you have eternal life by that very act. Don't think that in knowing the Bible and reading all about theology and having the Bible memorized that in that memorization and in that study is eternal life. Don't think that knowing the Bible is the end. Oh, I know the Bible, therefore my relationship with God is good. The Jews knew the Bible way better than you and I probably ever will. And Jesus says they're lost. The Bible is a means to an end. The Bible is, as it were, a tool is a means to an end, right? A tool accomplishes work. God's given us his word. It's written down so that we can read it. And it's a tool to do what? To bring us to him. To help us to know him as he's revealed himself. So it's a means by which we come to know God and come to know Christ. So when we study the Bible, indeed, we're going to find a lot of stuff for us, but, but come to know Christ through it. It tells us all about him. It's, it's, it's going to be the means by which our relationship with God is built and strengthened and grown. So approach the Bible that way and read it that way. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't pause for a moment and, and, and just take time to focus on verse 40, he refused to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is really appealing to them. I mean, he's giving them a stern shot across the mouth. This is actually a direct hit, but it's also an appeal. He's been appealing to them to believe, to trust in him. He's using signs. He's using witnesses to try and get them to believe. And what Jesus says is at the root of all unbelief, particularly their unbelief standing in front of him is this, a refusal to believe. I want to we may encounter people who don't believe. Maybe some people hearing don't believe. And if we do, Spurgeon had this great experiment. I'm going to read something from him as well in closing. That he, he urged people who didn't believe in the congregation that he was preaching in to stand in front of a mirror and, or get into a room and say out loud, I refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. I refuse it. I will not believe in him. And he said, if you can write that down, if you can repeat it in your own hearing, if you can look at yourself in the mirror, if you can stand face to face with yourself and say, I refuse to come to Christ. I don't believe in Jesus because I will not do it. It's not because of him. It's not because of anything wrong with him, but it's, it's me. I will not do it. He said, then great, I will believe what you said and off you can go and you can face your own eternal destiny. But what he was getting at was a lot of people don't understand. They think, well, the reason I don't believe in Jesus is because I saw some Christians fall morally and they're all hypocrites. I've never found a church I like. The, 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 the teaching's never great and the music isn't great. And, you know, I'd see how these Christians live, etc. cetera. Or, uh, you know, I'm not sure I know this God very well. I don't want to get to know him. And they excuse it. And what Jesus says is point blank. Actually, all that is just, it's just excuses. It's just noise. You don't believe because you refuse you refuse. It's an internal problem. And if there are any listening who don't believe in Jesus Christ, just understand it's your refusal. Jesus says, come to me. With God and the gospel, there is an open invitation, both arms wide open. Come to me. There is nothing in God that hinders you from believing in his son and receiving eternal life. The only thing hindering you is your own refusal. And I wanted you to look as well at the one you refuse. Examine who it is that you're rejecting. 
You're not refusing a relative you don't like. You're not refusing a cranky coworker. You're not refusing somebody that you don't really want to be around. You're refusing one who went to the cross for his people and died in their place, died in the place of sinners so that life could be offered to you. And here's what Spurgeon said on that. Think of the person whom you reject. You will not come to me, says Christ. I have been thinking of this all day, how it is that any man can be so base as to not come to my Lord Jesus Christ. Look at him. Let me portray him to you as he completed your redemption. He hangs upon his cross. His face is all stained with the bruises and the spit of the rough soldiers. And down it trickles the red drops that have been started from his temples by the crown of thorns. His eyes are red with weeping and with watching, and his visage is more marred than that of any man. You can see all his bones. His body is emaciated and worn with anguish. His hands, the cruel nails, have dragged and torn uh, till you see the wide gaping wounds from which the blood flows. His feet are the same. They are both fountains of blood. And then his side, behold his side, from which gushed blood and water from the deep wound made by the spear. It is he who thus redeemed mankind. The Lord of glory hangs there. The only begotten Son of God of the highest, the Prince of the kings of the earth, has given himself up to bleed and to die a felon's death for you. And what is your attitude towards him? You turn your backs upon him. Is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? Do you mean that it is nothing to you that Jesus should bleed to redeem men? Do you mean to refuse a share in that redemption? Do you utterly reject the bloody ransom price he has paid on that cross? If it is so, then put it down in plain English. Put it down in black and white and sign your name to it. I refuse Christ's blood. And he goes on and on. I just want everyone who doesn't believe to just consider who it is you're refusing. It's Christ. You'll never see us, you'll never see that kind of love displayed, dying for enemies, suffering for the sake of wicked people, so that everyone could have whosoever believes will have eternal life. So if this day you refuse Christ, I urge you to rethink your stance on Christ. I urge you to rethink your refusal. Why are you rejecting him? You have no good reason to do it. I urge you to repent and trust in him that you may have eternal life. Let's pray.